Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books Network in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicola Gurato, Professor of Political Sociology at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Professor Mina Rosses of the University of New South Wales, also in Australia. Professor Rosses is the author of Gender in Southeast Asia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. The book examines how religion and authoritarian governments advanced and police gender constructs, as well as the various ways in which citizens contest and resist these constructs. Professor Rosets, welcome to the New Books Network in Southeast Asian Studies. I am so starstruck. Thank you so much, Nicole, for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, I'm really excited. So first of all, congratulations. Uh, when I first read your email telling us about the publication of this book, I was genuinely curious to know how an established scholar in the field would bring together or, or synthesize topics and frameworks related to gender in Southeast Asia. And I guess for someone like me who is curious about the region but not really immersed in gender studies, uh, I found the book to be a valuable resource in appreciating the overarching narrative of constructing and investing gendered arms in Southeast Asia. So thank you so much. Uh, the book is such a gift. So you. I'd, I'd like to begin the interview by picking up on how you framed the book. Um, you described Southeast Asia, and I quote, a fertile place for analyzing gender differences that both defy and modify dominant paradigms that emanate from the Western world. What do you mean by this? Okay. Uh, what I really meant was that constructions of gender and prestige differ between Southeast Asia and the West, and so it doesn't conform to Western uh, theoretical paradigms on gender. And I think the best way to explain this, especially to look at how West, how Southeast Asia challenges gender theorizing or gender scholarship in the Western world is to give three specific examples. The first one is in the West, prior to the second wave feminist movement, there was a dominant belief that, that there was a gender binary, male, female, men, and women. But in Southeast Asia, there is a space for variations from this gender binary. There are the Bisu in Sulawesi, who are both male and female, part human and part deity. And because of this, they are able to communicate with the spirit world. But a true Bisu must refrain from any type of sexual activity and even lustful desire of any earthly things. Uh, according to anthropologist Sharon Graham Davis, Sulawesi has five genders, men, women, Bisu, Kalabai, male body, transgender women, and Kalalai female body, transgender male. So that's one way. Uh, uh, Western have a gender binary. Southeast Asia, we have gender pluralism. The second example is, for many years, Western liberal feminists fought for the right of women to have equal power in the household budget and the right to decide and manage the economy of the household. 
But in Southeast Asia, even in earliest times, women already held the purse strings and were the economic managers of the home. The husband's supposed to get his pay and then he's supposed to surrender it to his wife, who then will give him a little allowance for his beer and cigarettes. So Western liberal feminists will say, wow, the women in Southeast Asia have financial independence and autonomy. And indeed, Southeast Asian feminists didn't have to fight for the right to handle the money because they already did. In Vietnam, women are called generals of the interior to reflect this role. But then Southeast Asian feminists would argue that the responsible for the responsibility for the family budget was an enormous burden because women of the lower classes, for example, had to think of creative ways to extend the purchasing power of their husband's salaries. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the idea of thus holding economic power in Southeast Asia give you status. And, in, and the answer is not necessarily yes. In Buddha, Theravada Buddhist countries like Thailand and Myanmar, where societies are preoccupied with accumulating good karma, the woman's responsibility for the family's financial budget places her at a lower status than a man because she's concerned with material things. Uh, in Java, of course, you go to the market in, in, in Java, you'll see that it's women in, uh, uh, who are the vendors and women who are the customers. And of course, as Nicole would know in the Philippines also, you're part of this uh, uh, requirement for a woman is that you know how to haggle and bargain in the market. And of course, in Java, it requires some drama. I mean, my grandmother used to be, how much is this? And they'll say something and she'll say, Jesus, Mary Joseph, and walk off <laughs> and uh, wait for the, the, the guy to follow her around until the woman, until the vendor lowers the price. Now, this kind of behavior in Java would be considered coarse, kasar, in a, in a society where refinement and self-control are held in esteem. So that lowers women's status. So the, the process of haggling where you have to do a little bit of the duplicity or lying, oh, you know, uh, uh, you, you lower your status and you charm the person so that they'll buy your good. In Vietnam, that's a display of a lack of virtue so that gives them lower statuses because they have lower morals. And the final example is from the world of politics and power. In the West, uh, the belief is that the only person who has power is the person in political office. And so Western feminists lobbied ever since the 19th century for women to have the vote and become a politician. But in Southeast Asia, concepts of power is that power is held by the kinship group. So the person in office, if he's male, his wife, his family, his relatives, even the hangers-on. Uh, and so in the West, you wouldn't normally think the wife of the prime minister or the president has enormous influence. But in Southeast Asia, we think the whole family of the person in power has. Now, how does that help uh, in gendering of power? Well, women can access power through their ties with men. So as wives, mothers, daughters, and even mistresses of politicians, you can actually uh, exercise power through the links with a male. Now, this aspect is, of course, seen as corrupt uh, and illegitimate, but I just wanted to point out that it's still very real power. So I hope from those three examples, you could demonstrate uh, the difference between the Southeast Asian con context and the Western one. Yes, absolutely. I was really grateful for that discussion on how power relations um, in the political sphere are actually shaped uh, by kinship groups. And I think what's also special in the book 
And I think this is my favorite section of the book, as I've already anticipated. Uh, I think it's a section <laughs> on how authoritarian regimes uh, fashion uh, hegemonic gender ideals. So in a way, the book not only provides a very strong gendered analysis of power in politics, but also uh, authoritarian regimes and how we can make sense of it. Um, but first of all, what do you mean by hegemonic gender ideals in the book? And how are dominant gender constructs used as projections of state power? By hegemonic ideals, I mean the dominant cultural or state-sanctioned ideal man and ideal woman. In Southeast Asia, ideal men are breadwinners, warriors, or political and social leaders. Women are the other of men, so they must be wives or mothers, or wives and mothers ideally. So the implication of the hegemonic ideal is that an, if an individual fails to fulfill this ideal, then they are seen to be objects of pity or suffer terrible discrimination. Both men and women are expected to marry heteronormatively in order to achieve adulthood. But of course, women who do not marry and become mothers suffer more discrimination than men. I can save. Uh, you know, for my own personal experience as someone who's never married and has never been a mother, that I suffered the scorn of relatives and former classmates. So my aunt once told me that why is it that my former classmates all pitied me for being single? It was seen as a great tragedy. And of course, you won't be surprised that I never go to any of my class reunions. Uh, uh, so by hegemonic, I mean the ideal traits of a particular gender that is so dominant that if one fails to achieve it, you suffer discrimination and low status. I mean, men who don't marry also suffer discrimination, but nowhere near uh, uh, the extent that women do. Now, authoritarian states is a great, I like this question also very much, Liko, also one of my favorite questions, uh, is that authoritarian states also promoted their own gender uh, ideals that's sanctioned by them. And I thought when I wrote this book, I thought I would like to include a section of that authoritarian states also do this, which, which um, uh, and how, how did, why do they do it? Well, of course, they can make these, these fulfill their agendas. And I'll just give a couple of examples. And the best one is Vietnam, Southeast Asia, because the state keeps changing its construction of gender depending on the agenda. So during the war with the USA, uh, there was what they call a degendering of economic and both the economic and political sphere. Why? Because the, the Vietnamese state needed men and women to become soldiers to fight the war. And so women became leaders of cooperatives, carried food and munitions. They became nurses, couriers, guides, and they were called the long-haired army. Their children had creches who, uh, so that they didn't have to look after them. Uh, and this degendering was manifested even in the propaganda and the dress so you can see few gender markers. If you look at the propaganda posters, both of them wore similar dress, black pajamas. Mm -hmm. Women didn't wear cosmetics. And the only way you knew which was male and female is that the female had longer hair. So the idea of heroic femininity was the, what the state wanted. And so they were supposed to give up their sons for the war effort, uh, etc. And for the first time, the state removed the Confucian traditional ideals that women must obey their father's sons and husbands. But then the war ended, so they didn't need soldiers as much. So women were now supposed to go back to the home and be healers. Vietnamese beauty contests were introduced in 1989, and they have pictures of women in the outside, a traditional Vietnamese dress. 
and women become bearers of a tradition. The state-sanctioned women's union, Vietnam, Vietnam Women's Union, now says that you should wear skirts and not trousers. And from the 1990s, then you've got another shift. The state propagates the new Vietnamese woman, uh, which is the middle-class enlightened housewife, and her role is to produce a happy, healthy, and wealthy family with, you know, two children only per family and so on, and make sure that the family is not untainted by quote-unquote immorality such as drug addiction and marital fidelity. The women's, the Vietnam Women's Union now gives prizes for accomplished in housework and adept in, uh, accomplished in schoolwork and adept in housework is the prize. Uh, so that's a state. Why? Because the state is an open market economy and they want to promote the growth of a middle class. Uh, and that's part of the ideal. It doesn't mean that the women can't resist these things. Uh, uh, um, there are a lot of, even though the housewife ideal has been reinstated in Vietnam, there are a lot of women who are career women and a lot of women who who migrate to the city to get jobs, uh, some of them as domestic workers for middle-class women. So we did, it is possible to resist the state. So middle-class women can have careers, but maybe at the expense of, lo of lower-class women who are their domestic uh, workers and pay the price for this kind of rebellion. So that, that, that Vietnam is a, is a great. I just want to say a little bit about the state and sexuality because this is, again, something unique to Southeast Asia, I think. The state links sexualities with moralities and national identities. In other words, those who transgress the norm are placed outside the nation and are therefore un-Thai, un-Cambodian, and maybe even guilty of treason. So, for example, abortion is not just considered Buddhist sin in Thailand, it's considered un-Thai. In Malaysia and Singapore, political leaders have claimed that non-heteronormative sexualities are a Western import and threaten quote-unquote Asian values, so they must be expunged to protect the Asian family. So in Indonesia, LGBT personas are constructed by the state as an emerging threat to the nation's traditional values and identity. So scholar Henry Wijaya argued that the conservative forces demand the exclusion of queer people from national identity and belonging. And in fact, heterosexual marriage in Indonesia is supposed to be your civic duty. Uh, so these are examples. And then I think uh, one, one that goes to the everyday level is that the state morality is imposed on Indonesian policewomen. For example, if you're, you want to be a policewoman in Indonesia, you are subject to a virginity test because a pious, pretty woman signifies as a morally robust state. So these are examples that just show, I think, um, how much, how, imp how important these state values are, because it's also connected to national identity. Uh, uh, the, uh, the link between sexuality and the state shows the power of the state interfering in one's intimate identity, such as sexuality, uh, for and. And, and it has such consequences because the Malaysian government, for example, demonizes LGBT persons as traitors to the nation. And in Cambodia, LGBT persons are represented as threats to traditional Khmer culture. So I think that's one thing unique about Southeast Asia, that the way the authoritarian states link national identity with, with um, sexuality. Yes, and I think this is what Rage King about having a historian uh, writing this book. We get a long view of shifting gender norms and how these are related to 
uh, the changing identities and character um, of state power. Um, a while ago, we were talking about how Southeast Asia was uh, is a good um, field site in a way to challenge dominant um, interpretations of gender politics, especially when we call uh, the Western liberal lens. And I think one of the um, biggest contributions of this book is to also foreground uh, religion as a site to construct and contest gender norms. And so my question is, do you think dominant Western paradigms of gender studies, such as liberal democratic framework, for example, can also stand to benefit from using religion as lens to deepen their understanding of power and gender um, in their own context? And I think this is especially relevant in countries like the US and perhaps at some point in Australia, where religion plays a key role also in, in political life. So I guess my question is, what can the rest of the world learn uh, from Southeast Asia in foregrounding the role of gender and religion in um, social power structures? Okay, yes. Um, it's a big question, an important one. Um, I think Western paradigms in gender studies already do use religion to understand uh, gender in their own contexts. In the sense, for example, there's a whole field of Western feminist theology, uh, which uh, I had to read up when I looked at feminist Catholic nuns in the Philippines. Uh, uh, and the feminist nuns in the Philippines South and South Korea, for example, uh, uh, do analyze or, or, or theorize gender using uh, feminist theology. Uh, but, but your question about how the rest of the world can learn from Southeast Asian power gender power and religions is 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 very important because in southeast asia religion is very very close to fashioning men and women and it's always present in gender ideals so when you asked about hegemonic constructs uh religion plays a big role in that and so feminist theorizing has to take the role of religion feminist movements in southeast asia have to the role of religion, which might differ, as you say, from the Western context. So a specific example, in Thailand, the ideal son enters the monkhood, even if temporarily, to get good karma for his mother. So Thai men become masculine through ordination. The ideal man is an ex-monk who becomes a householder. Women are barred from ordination in Thailand and Myanmar. And since the hierarchy is that religious or monks are higher in the hierarchy than the laity, then women will always be lower than men. Now, there are women who decide to renounce the world, uh, but anthropologist Monica Lindbergh-Falk has, 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 has come up with a great way of calling them ambiguous women. They become ambiguous women because they are not wives or mothers, and they are not considered religious beings either. And that's why, and because they're not wives and mothers, then we know they fail the feminine ideal. And even though they renounce the world as Buddhist nuns, they are seen to be uh, in persons who have not fulfilled their ideals and are pitied. So I think the heavy influence of religion in shaping gender ideals, it's a perspective that Southeast Asia can contribute to gender studies globally. And also, I think when you think about it, in the Western world, you don't normally think of uh, Catholic nuns as feminists, 
in Southeast Asia, you would, uh, same in Korea. Uh, feminist Catholic nuns in the Philippines, for example, attempted to remove the impossible model of the Virgin Mary or the suffering mother, the Mater Dolorosa, as the ideal woman. Uh, and then they do feminist interpretations of the Bible. And then it's Sisters in Islam, which is a transnational feminist organization in Malaysia. They do feminist in reinterpretations of the Quran. And in Thailand today, of course, feminists lobby for the ordination of women. Uh, what can the rest of the world learn from Southeast Asia? In the conclusion to the book, I pointed out some contributions that uh, gender specialists might make to the uh, conversation about in global feminist studies. The first one is expanding the concept of politics to include informal power would be something. I mean, I know that uh, um, I'm always ambivalent about this because on the one hand, you don't want women to only be able to access power behind the scenes, which is may seem to be illegitimate. And of course, it's tied to relations with men. But on the other hand, at the moment, it's real power. And so what should we do with it? Should we actually, one, one possibility for activists is maybe they should try and give some gender sensitizing courses to the to the women who exercise power behind the scenes. But that's one concept. Uh, and and also, um, I think Myla Stevens has already made the point that, that we should expand the, the domain of politics to be beyond what normally we think is politics. Then there's the concept of gender pluralism, several genders is what Southeast Asia can bring. Uh, in terms of religions, which is started, um, Catholic nuns and, um, of course, uh, sisters in Islam, for example, were instrumental in uh, the, the feminist movements in in Southeast Asia, which you don't normally see feminist nuns or feminist religious being like leading leading feminists in, in, in the West in the world. And fourthly, the women's power in the economic sphere does not translate to status. So that's one uh, issue that is different. Uh, the fact that religious, that's why this religion question is very important. The religion and morality permeates the of measures of status. And this other one I thought was interesting is uh, so Dutch sociologist Saskia Weringas proposed that instead of queer theory, heteronormativity should be considered the practice that um, um, discriminates against the hegemonic norms. Why? Uh, in Southeast Asia, I was just thinking about this for a new project I'd like to work on, is that in, in Southeast Asia, you're not an adult unless you marry heteronormativity. So... Um, so you kind of have to. It's, a, it's what anthropologist Tom Bolstorff has called the marriage imperative. So I think, so Saskia Waringa says that, that that's what discriminates. So, so for example, uh, she thinks that there's widows and, and divorcees in, in, in Indonesia. They're, they're imagined to be promiscuous and, and they're seen as uh, low status uh, because they're not attached to a man who looks after them. Uh, yeah. When you're a single woman, your father's supposed to look after you. When you're married, your husband. But if you're divorced, uh, you don't have a per person looking after you. So she says sex workers, uh, uh, divorced women, widows, uh, women who love women, uh, um, they are all discriminated because of this demand that they must be attached to a man. So I thought that was kind of also something that um, Southeast Asia can co contribute, uh, even in feminist theorizing that so Wilringa is, is using an Indonesian study to 
present a new framework for looking at discrimination uh, of those who are not the ideal in, in the world. I mean, these scholarly works that you mentioned are, of course, very important scholarly work, but also they feel so real in everyday life. That woman from the Philippines, from Southeast Asia, these observations are astute and very much um, relatable. Um, so finally, we can't leave this discussion by just talking about these dominant gender constructs that are really stressing me out. So I'm not going your thoughts. One uh, where movements and practices that resist gender-based oppression are headed, right? Uh, a lot of um, observers of the region are describing Southeast Asia as headed towards a liberal direction, uh, especially in countries like Indonesia and Malaysia. So for our listeners who want to extend solidarity or perhaps just educate ourselves about resistance movement, movements in the religion, uh, let me repeat that. So for our listeners who want to extend solidarity or maybe just educate ourselves about resistance movements in the region, what developments are worth monitoring? Where can we find inspiration um, in Southeast Asia? At the moment, I've got the highest respect for, and for, for the LGBT resistance groups because I think they face the biggest challenges in this shift towards authoritarian rule in, in Southeast Asia or the, or the growth of, as you say, a liberal direction. Um, because I said earlier, authoritarian states link sexualities with morality and national identity. So the policing of sexualities make it very, very difficult for LGBT movements to thrive in places such as Malaysia, Singapore, Myanmar, and Indonesia. And they're quite vulnerable. Why? Because sexuality is still a very taboo topic. Uh, and so it's very difficult for them to move their agendas forward. So the situation is quite fluid because when my book went to press, homosexuality was still illegal in Singapore. But now uh, there are laws that have been repealed to decriminalize it. So you're right. It, we have to kind of see what's going on. It's, it's very fluid. And as we know, just a few months ago, Indonesia passed a law that banning sex outside marriage. So, you know, further policing in that end. Uh, in Mal Malaysia, homosexuality is illegal. So let's say the, mes the most well-known LGBT event, Sexuality Merdeka, has been banned since 2011 when a YouTube video appeared with a gay Muslim man hoping Malaysians would one day be able to say, I'm okay, I'm, okay, I'm gay and I'm okay. That was banned because it created a furor because religious authorities said the man should be arrested because the statement confesses, uh, could act at least as a confession of illegal sexual activity. So I think it's very difficult for them. These are laws that are passed uh, to control or to police people's sexuality. Uh, in, in Indonesia in 2016, there were campaigns to ban LGBT organizations from Indonesian university campuses. Uh, in January 2021, two men were accused of having a sex and each of them received 77 lashes from a rattan cane. Uh, and this was the third public flogging for homosexuality in Aceh since the province implemented Sharia law. Now, I admire those protesters in Myanmar since the coup, LGBT activists continue to protest against the coup saying, quote, I want a relationship, not a dictatorship, end quote. They join protests for democracy and so on. And 
yet they're targeted by the junta because of a deep hatred for the community. So I think uh, what we should monitor is for them, I think they're the most vulnerable uh, and it's still very fluid because there are changes in laws happening uh, all the time. I want a relationship, not a I love that. It's telling our police. I love that. I know it. I was telling my partner, don't you think it's so, you know, I want a relationship, not a dictatorship. So absolutely powerful. Professor Mina Rosas, thank you for your time. I hope you enjoy your next high school reunion. <laughs> I don't think I'm that brave, but thank you very much. Professor Rovses is the author of Gender in Southeast Asia, published by Cambridge University Press. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe to your favorite podcast app.